Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 2nd, 2022. Uh, earlier today, uh, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, which some people think is Silicon Valley. I think it's on the edge of Silicon Valley, but certainly it's a good place to watch Silicon Valley and think about big tech. Earlier today, I interviewed the British journalist Sebastian Malaby, author of a new book on venture capital called The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of, a new, uh, making of the New Future. So Malaby is cautiously optimistic, I think, about what he calls the new future of big tech. Uh, the book's been reviewed um, positively by some people, but there's a New York Times critique of, of Malaby's book, and it's a very good history of venture capital, suggests that he is too sympathetic to big tech uh, and to the venture community, which has been uh, investing in it, which has been shaping our future. The issue of big tech and the future is one that we've talked about endlessly on the show. Uh, late last year, I went downtown in San Francisco to talk to the father of the metaverse, one of the inventors of virtual reality, at least in literary terms, Neil Stevenson. Um, a couple of years ago, I had the great um, critic of what she calls surveillance capitalism, uh, Shoshana Zuboff uh, from Harvard University. Uh, Zuboff Zuboff's book on surveillance capitalism argues that the smartness of tele uh, the, the smartness of contemporary technology has meant that we are constructing a kind of capitalism where we are being watched all the time. I think most of the people we talk to from Silicon Valley recognize that when we talk about big technology, networked digital technology and the internet, we're really talking about artificial tech, uh, artificial intelligence, otherwise known as AI. Not everyone is a critic of AI. Surprisingly enough, the iconic uh, British feminist writer, Jeanette Winterson, um, has just written a book cautiously optimistic about the future of artificial intelligence, suggesting that actually artificial intelligence can save us. Uh, so not everyone is piling in on tech. My guest today, however, uh, Jacob Ward, who is talking to us from Oakland, just over the bay in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area, has a new book out called The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. Uh, Jacob's book, and I think his worldview, is much bleaker, much more in the Zuboff camp. Uh, Jacob, welcome. Uh, you call your, your new book The Loop, suggesting that this technology is a kind of panopticon in which we are imprisoned in this endless loop. What is it and how come we are drawn into it? Well, Andrew, thank you so much for having me uh, on. And, you know, the loop in, a, in the, the way I'm structuring the book is really three loops. The first one is our most ancient instincts. Um, as so many brilliant researchers over the last 50 years have pointed out about human behavior through their research, 
Um, we obey a lot of unconscious instinct in our day-to-day -day decisions, and we are using, in effect, a very ancient system uh, for doing so, a system that was built for us to unconsciously spot snakes and strangers and fire and calories, and we use that today in our modern landscape. There is a newer, higher consciousness, um, what they call the slow thinking brain, that's probably only about 70,000, maybe 100,000 years old. And we really pride ourselves on it. You and I are, are using it right now to speak to one another and um, all sorts of extraordinary inventions have come out of it. But the vast majority of the time, it turns out we are using our ancient instinctive system. This idea was popularized in Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So, yeah, you mentioned uh, Kahneman in the book. Um, oh, that's right. Are you also a behavioral econ economist? Uh, do you think of your work in that context? I, you know, as a journalist, I'm caught in this funny landscape in which, you know, I, I would never pretend to be a qualified economist, right? I, I am not a, um, a credentialed academic in any sense. You know, my job, as I see it, is to try to typically connect disparate ideas that I'm hoping people can can learn from by putting them together. In this case, what I'm trying to do in articulating what this loop is, is, is put together the world of behavioral science, the lessons of the last hundred years, with what I'm seeing out in the capitalist landscape of, of people purveying pattern recognition systems. And that, that we have a loop that our brain obeys. I think there's a secondary sort of modern loop that ensnares us in terms of addiction, cigarettes, gambling, that sort of thing. And now I think we're about to see a third loop encircling us. And that is the one that's going to not just analyze our choices through AI, but they're going to be fed back to us, sharpened, shaped. And that could, I think, in the long term, lead to a sort of downward spiral of shrinking choices. That's what I'm trying to warn about here. In terms of warning, um, Jacob, are there particular companies? The headlines today are very positive about Google. Uh, Google parent company Alphabet announced a, a 20 for one uh, stock split. Um, and uh, the Wall Street Journal suggests that uh, Google parent company Alphabet caps their blockbuster year with sales gains. Is Google the company that symbolizes your loop in terms of using artificial intelligence to, to feed us back what we already essentially know? Certainly, Google is one of the biggest uh, characters in this. Yes, I think that they, you know, as a company having pioneered um, uh, online advertising, you know, they are uh, one of the best at that sort of thing. And and one of the the pattern recognition uh, sort of models that they pioneered was the idea of finding the right person for the right ad. Um, I would say Facebook figures very prominently in it because they, of course. Um, when they lost uh, their top executive, right, uh, at advertising, and and she moved over to basically be uh, to to run the ship at, at Facebook. Sheryl Sandberg. Sheryl Sandberg. You know, she took it to a whole another level. So at Facebook, not only did they uh, take that extraordinary um, advertising model and and uh, run with it, they also refined it. Right now, the majority, or the last the last I was told by people inside Facebook, the majority of ads at Facebook are the the ad contracts between Facebook and the people who advertise on it are are written in terms not just that that 
guarantee a certain number of people will see the ad. They're actually written to guarantee that a certain number of people will do whatever it is you want them to do in the ad, whether it's buy something, subscribe to a newsletter, any of those things. So they're so confident in their ability to find the perfect person and predict whether, whether that person is going to be a susceptible uh, audience for your ad. You know, they've, they've run with it. Now, those companies... and Eric Schmidt famously yeah. said, I think it was in 2011 when he was the CEO uh, of, of uh, Google, that uh, he hoped uh, he, his company would know what people wanted before we knew it ourselves. And Mark Zuckerberg has suggested similar things. What about Apple? Apple's doing extremely well. When I saw the title of your book, uh, The Loop, I immediately thought of The Infinite Loop, which was Apple's old address. Is every big company as responsible for this as the others, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, as well as Google and Facebook? I think all of these companies, by the simple fact of their business incentives and the extraordinary resources available to them, cannot help but take advantage of AI to predict human behavior. And, you know, the point I try to make in this book is, you know, there are cartoonishly terrible examples of this where you have companies like um, there's a social casino industry um, that basically makes these online game-based casino simulators. They simulate the experience of sitting at a poker table or playing slots. And they combine that with things like social networking. You form clubs and there's video chat. Those companies have created such an addictive product that people are losing their life savings to a game in which you literally cannot win money back. It is the definition of a loser's game. So that is, for me, the most cartoonish kind of predatory use of this technology. Apple, Google, Facebook would all say to varying extents that what they are simply trying to do is create greater efficiency and convenience and value for their customers. And I think that is probably their intention. The worry that I have in the long run is that as we get used to handing over certain choices about our life to those companies and many other companies beyond, I think what has happened to us with, let's say, Google Maps, right, in which I can no longer find my way around even Oakland, where I live, I am dependent on putting that app on my dashboard. In the same way, we're going to see that in hiring, we're going to see that in loan making, we're going to see that in who gets bail, we're seeing it in policing, there's all these places in which these pretty much off-the-shelf pattern recognition algorithms are going to be sold to companies, institutions, as an efficiency system. And that's going to, I think, over time, maybe not in the next year or two, but certainly over the coming generation, we're going to lose the ability to make choices as humans that really define us as a species and separated us from what we were doing when we were just trying to survive living on instinct once upon a time. Jacob, you begin the book with a quote from the two fathers of the Frankfurt School, Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno, from their Dialectic of the Enlightenment, 1947. Uh, on their way towards modern science, human beings have discarded meaning. The concept is replaced by the formula, the cause by rules and probability. Uh, are you part of that Frankfurt School, or at least are you sympathetic to that Marxist critique of capitalist culture, the cultural critique of capitalism. Yeah. I, you know, the, the purpose of, of uh, a quote at the front of any book, right, is to get people's attention. And so I wouldn't claim to be, you know, a, a strong adherent of the Frankfurt School, but I would also say that 
the, the well, you wouldn't have started the book with a quote from Hitler. I mean, you'd have got yourself. That's into right. Trouble. I mean, presumably right. by quoting Adorno, it means that you you're sympathetic to his broader ideas in the in his uh, dialectic of enlightenment. Yeah, I mean, the two of them, I think, did a very brilliant job of saying we as a species have not learned as much as we should have from terrible experiences. That we are not as you know, good at taking the lessons of the past and implementing them in the future as we like to think we are. And that is definitely the theme across my interviews with behavioral scientists. If, you know, nothing, there's no greater bummer than, than, than listening to the worldview of people who really study the patterns and how people think. Because that what they discover over and over and over again is while we think we are these slow thinking, you know, rational, cautious, creative beings, we are in fact so instinctive and so uh, short-sighted and so amnesiac when it comes to the lessons of uh, the past. There's a famous researcher named Baruch Fischoff who coined the term hindsight bias. He did all these studies in which it turned out that if you show a group of historians um, uh, a, a prediction about the future uh, that wound up coming true, they'll basically, they'll basically overestimate the likelihood that it would have come true. They just think, well, in, you know, that of course, of course it worked out that way. And it turns out, in fact, if you trick them by showing them their own, uh, by asking them how what predictions they made in the past about something that came to be or did not, they will overestimate the likelihood that they made the right choice. They misremember even their own mistaken predictions. So for me, the reason I, I commit you know, many chapters of this book to a survey of about a hundred years worth of behavioral science is that what these, what all of these experts are basically saying is we're not in charge. You know, we're not at the wheel in the kind of sophisticated way we like to think we are. That's certainly what Adorno and Horkheimer, I think. Yeah, uh, coming back to uh, Horkheimer and uh, Adorno, here he is, uh, the old man himself, Theodore W. Adorno. I uh, had some interesting ideas on jazz music too. Um, Adorno and Horkheimer, of course, were writing in 1947 in the aftermath, metaphorically and literally, of the Second World War, of the Holocaust. And their work and that Frankfurt School was rooted in their analysis of Nazism as being the manifestation of the kind of end crisis of capitalism. Given the way in which you and many others are deeply pessimistic about the impact of digital technology on contemporary society, um, how much worse do things have to become before we get another Frankfurt School, another kind of dialectic of, in, of enlightenment? I mean, we're not. I mean, we're not going to repeat Auschwitz, but we're going to get to something which is, in some ways, equivalent in terms of the consequences. After all, uh, many people were warning about Nazism before 1945. How how, how serious is the situation? In historical terms, Jacob, you said that you've been looking over a hundred years of scientific analysis and behavioral uh, economics. For me, I, you know, I I certainly hope to God that we don't need to get to the point that that the Second World War uh, took us. Uh, you know, I do think that we are at a real crossroads right now in our ability to truly look at ourselves clearly. And I think that if we're not able to more clearly see ourselves, 
um, and our vulnerabilities to manipulation, to uh, believing the verdict of systems we don't understand, uh, to marketing, to all of that, I, I worry that we're headed for a place where um, you know, our ability to deploy our critical faculties in the ways that we've always needed them um, could be in real trouble. I mean, right now, you know, you have, uh, uh, you know, not just these vast companies like Google, Facebook, Apple, you know, which have the resources of a nation state and have essentially gotten to write their own rules. You know, it is it is our great fortune that you can't really hire anybody at a company these days without being able to articulate to them in a way that they believe that they are going to somehow improve the world. It's very, un, you know, it's it's a, a wonderful thing that social justice is in fashion for whatever reason uh, in tech. I'm glad of that. Um, but I also think we have not yet as a country, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at a, at a moment when everyone can, can understand, for instance, that tech is having some kind of negative effect on our ability to have productive discourse with one another, to, uh, you know, think things through properly, our attention spans, we can feel all that. At the same time, the Supreme Court no has outlawed the federal ban on sports gambling. Right now, sports gambling is on its ascendancy in the United States. More than half of our states allow people to, to mm -hmm. gamble on their phones on sports. To me, I, I look at that and I say, well, couldn't we all agree that, that there are a huge number of people that are simply out of control with that kind of gambling? There is a, there is a lack of appreciation and sensitivity, I think, for our vulnerability to manipulative systems, to addictive impulse. And until we can differentiate between the kind of addictive thing that drives somebody to stay on their Peloton, right, and stay healthy versus the kind of thing that causes somebody to blow all the money they have in the world on, a, an, you know, an imaginary game, you know, until we can distinguish between those two things, we're going to be in real trouble. And I think we, we're at a turning point right now where we have to do that. How, how much of your own... Um role in this, Jacob, I'm not blaming you, of course, for it. Have you evaluated your your day job is as a television journalist. I think you're the, the tech correspondent for uh, NBC. Uh, you spend most of your life um, in television. Uh, you know, when you reread something like Neil Postman's 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business, a lot of the stuff that Postman was warning us about 35 years ago uh, is coming into being. It's not just the internet, is it? Uh, Adorno and, uh, and Horkheimer were critics of mass culture, yeah. of, at that point, a, a relatively nascent television culture and industry. How important has television, do you think, been in the loop? Oh, I think it's it's a tremendously important part of it. You know, you speak to experts, for instance, in in bias. I interviewed a, a, a whole host of people who study bias, and one of the most they say one of the most pervasive uh, sort of uh, reinforcement mechanisms for bias is children's television, because when you make a children's television program, you can really only make your money back if you can create merchandising, toys around it. And in order to sell those toys effectively, you have to play into the gendered toy industry such that a, a store will know which shelf to stock your, your toys on. You know, there's some really insidious stuff. I, you know, I look at the role of television news where I work as being very crucial. And I've had the good fortune of working at places that 
take it very seriously, really consider it a, a holy uh, responsibility. Um, but I also know that we live in an era when, um, you know, the, the nature of the First Amendment makes it such in the United States that anybody can declare themselves a journalist. And I think that's a wonderful thing about the United even States. Even me, Jacob. Even, even you, exactly. And, and, and yet we're also now in a world in which attention is its own currency and that has created a whole new system. Right. Of we uh, uh, actually uh, earlier this week, I talked to the Union Square venture uh, partner, a venture capitalist, uh, my old friend uh, um, Albert Vango, has a, world, a new book out, "The World After Capital," in which he talks about the need to blow up what he calls the attention economy. We are talking with. Uh, Jacob Ward, the author of a really interesting new book, The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. Uh, we've talked about that world in the first part of our conversation. After the break, we're going to talk about how we can break out of the loop, how we can uh, fight back. So we'll be back, Jacob and I, in about 60 seconds. Hold tight, everybody. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Jacob Ward, the order, uh, the author, not the order, of a new book, The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. So, Jacob, fighting back, it's the chicken and the egg, isn't it? You suggest we're losing our agency in all this tech, and yet you're suggesting the way out is by manifesting agency. How do we establish agency to fight technology that's taking it away from us? Well, my... You know, one of my chief frustrations when I speak about this subject, certainly with tech companies, is the degree to which 
they and so many people want to put it on the individual. They, you know, there is the common refrain that we need to better educate ourselves. Uh, we need to be less distractible. There's a lot of rhetoric around putting it on the individual. And I would just say that's extraordinarily unfair. We are talking again about companies um, that are deploying the resources of a nation state, are bringing in some of the most brilliant behavioral scientists in the history of their field. Um, there is you know, literally nothing that these companies cannot throw at trying to, uh, uh, you know, e even if they're just trying to make life more efficient, they wind up shaping our behavior in this really fundamental way. And so for me, pushing back, you know, as individuals is not going to be enough. It has to at least begin at the level of community. So one example is um, for me, they're, they're uh, you know, I have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old and my, the group of parents um, that uh, I'm part of at our school, we are all working together to try to come up with a pledge that will allow us to uh, promise to each other that we won't give our kids individualized smartphones until at least high school. That conversation is very difficult. It requires coming to terms with your relationship to technology yourself, your relationship with your kids. There's all kinds of complications. And that's not going to happen, Jacob. You, you live in Oakland, probably surrounded by very like-minded parents. Uh, I sent my kids to Waldorf schools. I don't know if your kids go to Waldorf schools, but I've been through that. It's a complete waste of time. And it's an indulgence on the part of highly privileged people like ourselves. It's just not serious. So how are you going to get serious about fighting back? Well, I guess what I would say is the, the, the big lesson for me of that effort is how isolated individuals are in their efforts to try to push back against it. You know, research suggests that the vast majority of parents are learning what is considered normal, what should be normal in terms of their kids' relationship to technology from ads, from the companies making the technology. Are you suggesting we, we, we control, we regulate the advertising? I don't see... No, no. Google I just mean Apple that... Ads I just mean that... ...on parents' yeah. decision to allow their kids to have a smartphone or not. I just mean that we are certainly adrift right now when it comes to any sort of effective. Now, I, I take that, but how are we going to fight back? Give me some concrete examples. Yeah. I, so, I understand the frustration and the challenges, but yeah. you're suggesting that we can fight back. How? So here is one suggestion. There are there are some nascent regulations around gambling that I think are a very interesting corollary to what we're talking about here. Um, there's a fantastic researcher named Natasha Dow Shull who wrote a, a book about machine gambling. It's called The, uh, uh, the Machine Zone uh, and is just a, a fascinating person. And she helped to write a law that's on the books in Massachusetts now, and no one has used it yet, but it requires companies who operate gambling to turn over their data at the request of regulators. And the reason she says that this would be so interesting and so useful is it turns out that the signature of addiction is very much present in that data, so much so that there is, in fact, a Canadian casino that took the software that can, that can identify and predict addictive behavior in gamblers and uses it to cut people off in real time at the table when the technology says you've gone too far. Now, I don't know the last time you spent uh, any time on TikTok. I've had, uh, you know, long, long hours scrolling through that, and that app 
similarly tells you when you've been scrolling too fast. It says you're going too fast, slow down and take a break. And eventually a, a video comes up that says you should go to bed now, you've had enough. So these companies- We won that though. I mean, and also let's be realistic here. Uh, you know, it's all very well. I've heard that so many times about uh, controlling, regulating tech. The headlines today are senators are pushing back to bring tech giants to the negotiating table with um, with publishers. We have Amy Klobuchar, who's probably about as effective as Joe Biden being the poster child, the pinup for fighting big tech. She's got about as much chance as, as I have. Meanwhile, Google are using all their resources to fight Klobuchar and the idea of an antitrust bill. This is just simply not realistic, is it? Jacob. Well, I, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, I uh, a critic in the Washington Post called, you know, referred to this book as pessimistic, and you've used that word a couple of times. I, I think it is too much to expect that in our lifetime we're going to necessarily solve this problem. I think it's one of the biggest problems we as humanity have to solve. And I know that you know the there has been tremendously embarrassing performances from public officials. Uh, when it comes to their critiques of this stuff in the past. But you also have those same officials starting to read books like The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, using that word. You had in the, in the testimony- I have to be, honest, I have to be honest, Jacob, I would be yeah. amazed if any anyone in DC has read, uh, Shosh I blurbed the book, uh, all 500 pages of Shoshana's book. It's a good book, but it's quite heavy reading. I can't imagine even Amy Klobuchar hasn't read it. I doubt it, but I bet a staffer has, right? I mean, I, this is the yeah. thing is-, is I think that there are there is a nascent understanding of the stakes here. Now, we're still stuck in a world in which the left and the right in Washington are talking about it for different reasons. Uh, you know, and and you know, there's a lot of of fog in there, but I also think that there we've come a long way from Mr. Zuckerberg, how is it that you make money? We're now in a world where, you know, the testimony around the Facebook papers, people were using words like the attention economy. People were starting to understand what research has been so warning you people believe, about. Uh, and, and you say this at the, uh, at the end of the book, uh, you say uh, perhaps AI should only be applied to public problems at first. Uh, you have some examples of useful ways in which AI, but, but the idea of what are you going to do? Ban the rest of the use of AI? All tech now is AI. Everything think, from right. social media to Web3, where I think that there is a, a there are some interesting precedents around you know like like until now we have essentially treated economy you know the the attention uh, our attention and our decisions as if they are this sort of endless ephemeral resource, but I believe that people are beginning to understand that it is not that and that in fact. Um, you know, I, people use the term mining, and I like that term because I think it's, it also brings up uh, the environmental which term? Sorry? Which term? Mining, like mining for our attention. You know, there are environmental regulations that we put on all sorts of companies that that by the nature of what they do, cast off emissions and poison the groundwater. You know, there are there are ways that we have come up with thinking about the uh, long-term uh, impact of these companies. And I have a feeling that in this case, there is a way to look at the long-term and quantify the long-term effects of this stuff and make it more costly for companies to play with it than it has been so far. Um, Alvin Turfler wrote his famous book, Future Shock, about a future in which speed would be everything. And the problem with the arguments you're making is these companies are moving so quickly and government yes. is so slow. Yes. Sort of epitomized by someone like uh, Amy Klobuchar in comparison to 
Google and the resources and the big tech it has. So this is simply my sense, uh, Jacob, for better or worse, it's just not going to happen. And the idea that we can fight back using regulation has, I mean, the kinds of books that you've just written, these kinds of books have been coming out for 10 or 15 years and none of them have really been effective in terms of of convincing the government, the US government anyway, isn't effective in dealing with anything. There's still a huge debate about whether or not children should be allowed to drink Coca-Cola in, in, in their canteens, let alone use cell phones. Yeah, I think that for me, I try to take hope from the places in which I've seen against all odds, people come together over certain shared values. So for me, you know, one example is um, when you buy a new car right now, you are paying a little bit extra for a mandatory piece of equipment that didn't used to be required in cars. And that's a backup camera. When you put it in reverse, you have to be able to see the perspective from the bumper. And the reason that is, is that people were running their own children over in their driveways. About 60 kids a year were dying of that. Now, 60 kids a year in the scheme of things compared to something like handguns or auto accidents is a tiny number of people. But it was so abhorrent to everybody. We could all see that so clearly that it became a bipartisan issue and they passed legislation to force automakers to pay for that. We end up paying for it now in the sticker price. To me, I look at that and I think maybe someone along the way, I've tried here, I think more people will have to try, but someone along the way is going to do a better job than I have or anyone else has of really articulating the cost, the abhorrence of all of this and I think inspire people to take action. That's what I'm hoping for. I can't choose to hope any other way. What about the role of tech itself in dealing with this? As a new startup in Silicon Valley, OpenAI, my sense is it's anything but open, founded by some of the biggest, heaviest hitters in the Valley, including uh, Elon Musk and Sam Altman, who still runs it. Uh, There's talk about OpenAI being run on Web3 principles of openness, of the, the, the destruction of hierarchy. Uh, can tech be used to control and fight tech? Could there be a new big tech of the future built around platforms like OpenAI that can I've, confront yeah. these issues? I certainly believe that the, the, the problem here is not just the technology. The technology is problematic, but I think profit is really the problem here. I think you put money into almost any system and it winds up corrupting. Now you're sounding like Adorno and Hawkeye. I know, I know, I knew. I know, know. it's tough. You know, I I cover business for a living and I wind up uh, uh, saying things like this. You know, that's the, the, for me, has always been the crucial variable is, is, you know, efficiency plus uh, quarter by quarter profit motive, you know, can cause some real problems. So for me, when I look at, at things like OpenAI, when I look at, um, there's a fantastic project called Polis uh, by a guy named Colin McGill, which tries to essentially um, survey voters and automatically write white papers that get delivered to their elected representatives. Um, you know, there are all sorts of automated systems, systems like AI that can be used to actually predict which police officers may be most likely to um, gun someone down by accident. 
um, or wrongfully. You know, there are, there are I had a, an AI expert telling me the other day that if you were to simply give him all of the birth certificates in the United States every year, he could tell you which addresses to go and repaint to avoid lead poisoning in those kids. You know, we have incredible capabilities, but nobody's making money off of any of that. And so for me, I do think there has to be some sort of distinction drawn between a for-profit use of AI, which has always been the sort of ideal of our society. Um, you know, growth at any cost is good. That has been a big part of our, you know, of, of modern America. I think we have to look at the outrageous power of these systems to shape our behavior and predict our, our you know, yeah, not just predict our behavior, but shape it and, and draw some sort of distinction there. What that is, I'm not sure, but we have to start looking at it more clearly. I think you're, you're punting intellectually, Jacob. There is, of course, a third way, which most people I think would be uncomfortable with. I had the Malaysian-based geostrategic thinker, Chandra Nair, on the show recently, speaking up the... Chinese technocratic model. Uh, Kishore Mabubani, the Singapore analyst, has been on the show articulating the same thing. Chinese seem much more effective in dealing with the social and cultural impact of technology on their society than the US. Could this be one area where Chinese uh, sort of surveillance technocracy might provide the solution? in comparison to the inefficiencies, the incompetence of American democracy? I think it's a very complicated thing to try to weigh. You know, I, I don't think effectiveness is our only measure. But it's a reality, can... Jacob. Like it or yeah. not, the Chinese are able to ban stuff if they don't like it, like gambling sure. for children, which they've done a much more effective job than the Americans. Yeah, but you also have to... In the longer term, the Chinese yeah. model will win out over the American model? Well, that is certainly what a lot of people are worried about, right? There is no guarantee that our model is the one that is going to work and win, right? There's this, uh, you know, the, the famous quote, you know, the, the moral arc of history is long, of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. You know, the behavioral scientists that I talked to, to Martin said, Luther King never saw the internet. He was never on Facebook. That's right. It? That's right. You know, the abolitionist Theodore Parker had no idea, you know, and, and, and people basically are saying now, we don't know how, whether the, the, whether it's an arc, how long it is. We haven't been in it long enough to know. So, Everything we are doing, I mean, if anything, writing this book has taught me that everything we are doing is an experiment. We're just winging it out here. And so... Are we, are we heading, we're heading for an iceberg, you're suggesting. Is it closer to Orwell's 1984 or, or, or Huxley's uh, Brave New World? Uh, Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. In 1985, he wrote that um, the big danger was, was Huxley's brave new world, that that's the world that we're heading towards. And it seems to be one that you're suggesting as well. Yeah, I, for me, I, I, a much less dignified example for me is the movie Idiocracy, right? It's that thing of, of amplifying the worst aspects of ourselves. I worry about that because it is the easiest thing to make money off of our most instinctive decisions. You want to sell to our ancient unconscious impulses. You don't want to sell to the modern creative mind. And so for me, that that is is one of the things that, that's the distinction that I, I hope to be able to help people sort of understand a little bit more clearly. Now, you know, I, I, I'm a believer in change. I, you know, I am, a, I'm, I'm, I believe what that- What does that you know, mean you're a believer in change? I'm a believer in the idea that we as a society have navigated all kinds of otherwise impossible things. I mean, you talk to people who really study how human society developed and they just say, you know, 
it is a miracle that we are able to do things like stay in our own lanes on the highway, you know, or put a gathering of diverse people together and nobody yeah, you, 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 you and I live in San Francisco. I don't think many people here are, stay in their own lanes. Not well, maybe not. But, you know, to me, it is the it is I, I am a great believer in the ability of human beings to to adapt and make decisions amongst ourselves. But I think that we are faced here with a technology that is take that could take some of that power away from us and it will has, feel and, and, good that's right. right and that's going to be the thing that we have to push back against and um uh jacob i think you you want to feel good about this you're you're part of a culture that believes in fixing stuff believes that we should have the power to fix stuff i'm still not convinced that we have at least in your book a strategy for doing it anyway it's an interesting read the loop how technology is creating a world without choices and how to fight back. It's just that. What else should people be reading in February 2022, Jake? Well, I'll tell you some of the books that made the, the greatest impact on me in reading this. Um, there is a, a, a pair of political scientists and mathematicians named uh, Elizabeth, uh, John Patty and Elizabeth Penn. Uh, they're a husband and wife duo, and they are fascinating. And they wrote a book um, called uh, uh, Social Choice and Legitimacy, The Impossibility of Possibility. And basically, they are trying to say that our, I think you, based on our conversation here today, you would find them very interesting in, in that they essentially you say- You know them, I have to get them on the show. Yeah, they're, they're very smart people. And they basically say, you know, the, the, the illusion that we can have everything we want, that everyone can be happy and satisfied in a democratic society is an illusion and that we need instead to focus simply on the idea that we have to create legitimacy. We have to give everybody the feeling that the decision process is legitimate in order for us to get ahead. For me, they they were, it was like, it was like having read, you know, 19th century physics all that time and then suddenly discovering relativity. They are an incredible duo. So and for them, they- And what's the name again? And, and what's the so, title of the book? Yeah, John Patty and Elizabeth Penn. And the book is called um, uh, Social Choice and Legitimacy. Social in, Choice and Legitimacy. Anything else? Possibility possibility. That's a big one. Jacob? Another one um, is um, Paradise Now. It's a history of utopian thinking by a guy named Chris Jennings. Um, and was a very interesting read for me. It's about 19th century utopians. They tended to be, uh, so, so they, they would model themselves on, on the, the earliest possible Christians and were trying to push back against some of the same stuff that, that uh, you and I have been talking about today. Um, he makes the excellent point that one of the things that technology is missing right now is a, a utopian goal in the way that those people had, and that that is robbing us of the ability to really steer the ship, and that we're just sort of in this rudderless pursuit of efficiency all the time. I thought that was really interesting. And then um, the last one that, that I base a whole chapter of the book on is a book called How Reason Almost Lost Its Mind. Uh, it's by a long string of authors. Um, the one I've been in touch with is named Paul Erickson. And that one is a history of the quote unquote action rationalists. It's the people that uh, Dr. Strangelove is based on. It's all the Rand Corporation people who were trying to come up with an automated system for sorting out differences between nuclear powered companies. And they basically took the rationalism of the Berlin airlift as, the, as this great victory against chaos and with it set in motion this pursuit of rationalism that set us up 
in many ways, I think, for the forces that I'm trying to look at in this book. So um, I would recommend any of those. And of course, there's so many smart people thinking about the same stuff. I am, we've mentioned Shoshana Zuboff. Um, you know, I just think that that this, I hope that this canon goes and goes. I hope yeah. is not uh, the last another, another um, person I think who's well worth reading on AI is Nick, my old friend Nick Carr, his book. It's from a few years ago, The Glass Cage, How Our Computers Are Changing Us is also yeah. very much on these lines. Anyway, excellent conversation with Jacob Warp, the author of The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. We've got to have these conversations. He's more optimistic than I am, but then that's his job. Uh, I just asked the questions. Jacob, real honor to have you on the show. Best of luck with everything. And we'll talk again in the not too distant future about pushing back on the loop, escaping it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew.